This morning we're in our second week of our Go series, and I have to tell you, as I've looked at this and as I look ahead, I don't know, I'm excited, I'll say that. I don't know if I've ever been more excited about a, a series, but as I look at, we're kind of going back to some basics, but in going back to basics, I, it's, in, it's lighting a fire in me to think about how I am living a life of going into the world, and what kind of a presence do I have in my sphere of influence, and so I, I hope that you kind of get a sense of that too, and that it, all of us together kind of have this fire reignited to go out into the world and represent Jesus. This morning we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to do something that I, I, I love doing but haven't done yet, I, I don't believe yet, in my time here at Simi Covenant. We're just going to work through verse by verse. I think what's going on here, uh, what I, the reason I, I chose this and love this text and chose that approach is Paul here, in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul has had a little bit of a rocky relationship going on with this church. Apparently, there have been some guys that came into town after Paul left the church in Corinth. Some guys came into town that Paul refers to later in chapter 11 as the super apostles. And I think if he had air quotes back then, he would have done that. These super apostles, so-called super apostles, who have come into town and they've started preaching a different gospel than what Paul taught the people. They've come and they've led the people astray. And if we just back up even from our text this morning in chapter 5, we see throughout 2 Corinthians, Paul trying to get the people's attention again so that they can kind of get back to the basics, the basics of the Christian faith. And this morning, what I want us to get back to is the basics of of what Jesus did. This is what Paul is calling them to. I think it applies to us as well. And then at the end of this, once he says, here's the basics, then he says, now take those basics and go. You have a job to do. It's not just learning the basics, not just getting and going, okay, now I understand here in my brain. But he says to the church, now take what you know and go. If we back up in verse 11 of, of 2 Corinthians 5, we see Paul laying out the issue here. He's saying, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. He's, he's unapologetic in this, that they are trying to persuade others. They're trying to tell other people of the good news of Jesus Christ. In verse 12, he says, we're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those, and here's where he's talking about these super apostles, you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. Another translation of verse 12, I love this because I think it, it describes the situation a little bit better. He says, are we, we, no, we are giving you a reason to be proud of us so you can answer those who brag about having a spectacular ministry rather than a sincere heart. I imagine that Paul is up against these guys, these people who have come to town to teach this false thing. And they have some gimmicks, they have some tricks, they're speaking to people's kind of lizard brains. The things that you want, the things you desire, they say, you can have all that. You can have all that. You don't have to sacrifice anything. You can have everything you want and still follow Jesus. And Paul is saying, I don't think that's the way it works. These people have a flashy ministry. They have these gimmicks and tricks. They're winning you over, but it's not the truth. It's not the truth. And so he's calling them back to the truth. In chapter 11, I'm just going to read a little bit of chapter 11. Paul gets really fired up about these guys, really fired up, just so you have some context of what's going on here. 
Paul, Paul gets fired up. He says, I hope you will put up with me a little foolishness. Yes, please put up with me. I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. I do not think I am inferior to these super apostles. Apostles. I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. And then he picks up in verse 12. And I will keep on doing what I am doing to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. He's kind of fired up about these guys. He actually then goes on to say, these people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. He's like, these guys are in line with Satan. Their end will be what their actions deserve. Whoa. Paul's a little bit fired up. What I love, though, is, is in his fire and his agitation, if we go back to chapter 5, where we're going we're gonna to walk through this morning, as I've said, he goes back to the basics, to remind them of what it is that Jesus has done on the cross, to remind them of what God has done, this amazing thing God has done. I imagine Paul just at this point of like, I, I, am I seriously defending the truth again? Are we really going over this again? And yet he does. He takes the time to go through it again with them. So let's go uh, through the text here starting in verse 16. Verse 16. It says, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. I remember reading this text, and I wonder when Paul writes this to them. Remember, they're, they're opening this letter. They're reading this letter to the church. If when they read this, Paul's saying, Now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. If when you read that, as I've read that devotionally over the years, I've had to stop and say, Do I? Do I no longer regard people from a human point of view? Do I really? If I'm really honest about who I am as I go about my life in the world, as I see people, do I really look at people and look at them through the eyes of Christ? This is a reminder to all of us, Paul saying, remember, remember, as he's going to say in the next verse, if you're in Christ, we no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view. In fact, the literal text here, the, the Greek text Paul, this is one of Paul's idioms, one of Paul's things where he says, we no longer see the world according to the flesh. According to the flesh is that uh, Paul's way of saying, just by what you want to get out of people, what you, what you need from people, using people part, maybe, or, or just judging people through the way that the world judges people. And he's saying, no, if you're in Christ, we don't do that anymore. Again, we're not controlled by the impulses of the lizard brain. It's kind of what Paul is saying here. This desire to grab, to get, to consume at any cost, to fight, to... No, if you're in Christ, that's not you, Paul is saying. Instead, you're controlled by the Spirit. 
And he's reminding the church this. Remember, remember what I taught you. And Paul even reminds them that there was a time when he and others regarded Christ from a worldly point of view. Remember, Paul was part of the religious authorities, the religious leaders of Judaism who said, this guy, he's not the Messiah. Uh Uh-uh. He was part of the crew of people that wanted to crucify Jesus, that got what they wanted. And then he was part of the crew of people who rounded up Christians to have them killed. That was Paul. And he's saying, one time in my life, I looked at Jesus and said, this Jesus, this guy, yeah, he might be a great teacher. He might be a great ethicist. He's moral. He's nice. But you know what? He's not the Messiah. Uh Uh-uh. And so he's saying he even saw Jesus from a worldly point of view. And, And again, I think he's calling them, do you, are we seeing Jesus from a worldly point of view? Church in Corinth, church today, are we seeing Jesus from a worldly point of view? How many times have I talked to people and they've, they've said, kind of to, to, to a certain extent, yeah, Jesus is great, but what has he done for me lately? Are we looking at Jesus from a worldly point of view, from a worldly point of view? Now, now, this is just the first verse, and we're just getting started, and so get ready, because it's, it's really coming now, okay? So now, verse 17. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, so he's picking up on this, says, in fact, remember, if you are in Christ, a new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. The operative phrase in this verse, one that Paul loves to use, is in Christ. If you are in Christ, You are brand new. You're new. You've been changed. You are no longer the person that you were before. Do we believe that? I mean, he's reminding them of this because sometimes we just, it's like, oh, that's a nice idea, but I don't know if I can really wrap my mind around this. New eyes, new ears, new way of seeing the world transformed by being in Christ. This is the language of rebirth. Are you born again? We don't hear that often in the church today because I think it's kind of been co-opted to a negative now in culture. But this is the idea here. Are you born again? Are you a brand new person? Because you're in Christ. And Paul is saying, if you're in Christ, that's a reality. You can fight against it all you want. But it's a reality that if you're in Christ, you're a new person, a new creation. It makes me think of a couple movies, and these are a little bit dated now, uh, but the these movies are The Matrix. Remember The Matrix? And, and people, they thought they understood reality until they were unplugged from what looked like reality and it was just a computer system. And so now they saw things completely differently. Once, once they were transformed and, and they understood re- reality, really, really real reality, this is kind of what the world looked like. It was all a computer system and they saw that it was different. The new creation. Another one that came to mind was the Truman Show. This was just a classic movie. Remember, he, he, he's just living his life and everybody else are actors. And he has no idea. It's just real life and he's just going about it. And people are watching his life on TV and he has no idea. But then he figures it out and at that moment he steps out of the world that was created for him. And he starts to realize, he starts to pick up on that there is a different reality. There's a different reality going on. I think Paul is saying that something similar happens to us when we become in Christ. When we invite Christ into our lives, we become new. We see the world differently. 
Some of you, I shared this quote on Facebook, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share it with you this morning. And, uh, it's funny because it's, it's really flowery language, and I love really flowery language, believe it or not. Um, I love words. And I, I shared this and said, like, yes, I am excited to preach this on Sunday. And one of my friends who's a pastor in Washington was like, I don't know that I have three people in my congregation that would even understand what this is. And I was like, let's see. Let's see if we got three at See Me Covenant. Anyway. This, this is like old school Bible commentary language. I love it. It just remind, It's just like the old school stuff. This guy writes this. He says, Not only does Paul no longer know anyone according to the flesh, but also as a man in Christ, he is in fact a new creation. And this is the part I love. You ready for this? A reborn microcosm belonging to the eschatological macrocosm of the new heavens and the new earth. Yeah, baby. There you go. If you are in Christ, congratulations. You are a reborn microcosm of the eschatological macrocosm of the new heavens and the new earth. But he didn't stop there. He's like, hey, for whom, for whom the old order of things has given place to a transcendental experience in which everything is new. Now, if you haven't wrapped your mind around that yet, <laughs> if you're not one of the three that gets it, apparently that's the magic number according to my Facebook friends. If you're not, if you're not re- a reborn microcosm, you are reborn to live in this place, representing that big word eschatological is the end times reality, the end reality of God making all things new, reconciliation, redemption of all things. This, this commentator is saying if you are a new creation, you're living now like you're unplugged from the matrix and you see everything as it will be. Not looking at things and going, oh, that's terrible. Oh, that's bad. Ooh, this world is just, oh, it's messed up. Yeah, it is messed up because it's not finalized yet. God hasn't brought it all to completion yet. But we are to live as reborn microcosms like it's all been made new for us. And as a new creation, we live in the reality that all things are being made new and being redeemed and being changed I just love that language. I had to share it with you even if you're going to get it or not. I was like, I, I like it enough that somebody's got it. somebody else needs to know about it. Verse 19, Paul keeps going. All this, all that he's talked about before about being a new creation, seeing the world differently, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. One commentator said, you know, you got to read that again really slowly because this, there's a lot of juice right here in this passage. Right here, this verse communicates so much about the truth of what Jesus did, what God did in sending his son to us that you can't Miss it. You can't go fast over it and just say like, yeah, I I assume everybody knows this stuff. You need to slow down and let it sink in. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. Again, this is some of the most basic Christian theology. Paul is reminding them of the truths that they learned 
so they don't go on some other tangent. Some other tangent being what? Some other tangent that maybe it's not from God. Maybe new life is from what you can do, from what I can do. We can be good enough. We can, we can do enough things to get it. And Paul's like, no, enough. Enough gimmicks, enough tricks, enough what these, these super apostles are, are telling you. This all, the new creation business, you, you can't muster up the strength to be a new creation. That comes from God. God did the work. All this stuff about being in Christ, being a new creation, seeing the world differently, you and I, Paul is saying, we, we can't muster up the strength to do this on our own, to make it happen. We can't manipulate the system into doing this, into coming up with a way of maybe an exchange or something. We can't, no amount of resources, money, talent, fame, power can make any of this happen. It's all from God. God is the one who did the work of reconciling us to himself. Sometimes I fear we forget that. We're going to pick up on that next week. This idea that it's God who makes the step, makes the move toward us. Because sometimes we feel like God has, has, has maybe turned his back and said, if, if you would get your act together, isn't this kind of how we feel sometimes? If you would just get your act together, if you would clean up your life, then maybe you can come back. And all the while God is saying, no, he, or Paul is saying that God made the move toward us. God move toward us. God did the work. God did the reconciling. God chose to send Christ. It's God motivated by his love for humanity, his love for us, who sends his son to bring the relationship back together. And implied in Paul's language is that the work is already done. This is something that, that I think we have to be reminded of. I believe we need to be reminded of time and time again. That the work of reconciliation, the work of forgiveness has been done. It's been done on the cross. Sometimes we bring it up as like, oh, every time you lie, every time you cheat, every time you steal, every time you do something, you're, you're crucifying Christ all over again. But no, the work has been done. The work has been done. God chose to reconcile the whole world to himself, Paul says, not counting people's sins against them. Motivated by his love for creation, God has chosen to forgive, to not count our sins against us. It reminds me of the street preachers who love to tell people that God is counting their sins against them. I found that quite ironic as I was thinking about this text. This this. This blows my mind. I, I don't know. I, I, I've maybe glossed over this too much. Paul's saying, God reconciled the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. And yet we have street preachers who want to stand out there and go, God is counting your sins against you. You're going to go to hell. That's what these, and what if somebody stood out there and said, hey, it's good news. God is not counting your sins against you. That sounds a little radical to us maybe. Like, oh, but there is a, oh, like, Paul is saying here, God has chosen to not count people's sins against them, that God has chosen to send Christ to bring reconciliation. This should be good news. Our first response shouldn't be, yeah, but people have to do X, Y, or Z. Because I know some of you are thinking that. Yeah, but 
Don't people have to do X, Y, or Z? Yes, people have to respond to the good news, have to receive the good news, but it's a free gift. It's not a once you get all this other stuff cleaned up, then get the gift. It's all ready been done. God, Paul says, has made the choice to not count your sins against you. And that's good news. I don't know if that's good news for you. That's good news for me. That's good news that Paul, yeah, there we go. Okay. God has made a choice to not say, ooh, yeah, I got a list. It's pretty long. This one's just in big trouble. No hope for this one. Throw it out. No, he made the choice to not. I can't say it enough. There you go. I had a worship professor, a theology and worship professor named John Weborg, who we used to call Yoda. Um, anyway, I could go into a story about that, but for another time. His words, though, he said, he said something one time that, that any time this kind of a topic of reconciliation and what, what did God do in sending his son and how does all this work, uh, these words keep coming back to me. He said once to a group of pastors, he said, remember, you can't do anything that is not already atoned for. You can't get more grace. You have enough. You can't do anything that Jesus didn't already die for. Sometimes we imagine, I think, that, that we are so far gone. I, I remember uh, having a conversation with a man in Las Vegas on a mission trip, just asked if we could pray for this guy. And he was severely intoxicated. He was very drunk. He kept apologizing for the fact that he was very drunk. And all we wanted to do was pray for him. And he said, there's no way. You don't know what I've done in my life. You don't know. And he refused to be prayed for. He kept saying, I think what you guys are doing is great. You, we're with the youth group kids. He said, this is just great that you're doing with these kids. Is there, I'll go over to the ATM and get money out to help your cause. What do you need? And we just kept saying, no, we don't want your money. We want to pray for you. He kept saying, no, you don't know what I've done. I mean, here I am. I mean, I'm in Vegas. I'm getting kicked out of casinos because I'm completely drunk. And you want to pray for me? He refused to accept the fact that he can't get more grace. There is enough. God has already forgiven all those things. And he just refused. And it really threw me off because he refused to receive the gift. God has done the work. It's done. You can't get more grace. You have enough. Christ has died for anything you can imagine doing, anything you've done. Christ has done it. And the question is, the question is as we move now into the, what do we do about that? What do we do about these truths? A lot of us, uh, including myself, I love that for me. Can we extend that grace to our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, our fellow classmates? Can we extend that grace to others? Can we want that for others, for our enemies? Can we want that for them? Can we extend that radical, scandalous grace? Because this is, this is scandalous stuff. To say that there's a God of the universe who isn't checking boxes and saying, hey, let's weigh the scales. Today you did a bunch of bad things. You're in trouble. Hope you don't die tonight because you did a bunch of bad stuff today. That instead God is saying, enough with that system. I'm moving towards you. I want to be in relationship with you no matter what you've done. Can we believe that not just for us but for everyone we know? Verses 20 and 21, Paul then 
talking about this message, this ministry that we have, says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you, he says to the church, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He closes this giving them a task, and this is the go task for you, for me, for everyone who would say, I am in Christ, we are in Christ Here's the task. Go and be ambassadors for Christ. As if God, as though God, were making his appeal through us. I recently heard a speaker talking about the role of the ambassador. And he gave these interesting facts. I just want to kind of work through these. He said, an ambassador lives in a culture not your own, representing your culture's values. Think about these things as it applies to being an ambassador for Christ. We live in a culture that we say is not our own. That we are no longer a part of this world. We're a new creation. We see things differently. So this, this culture is not ours, but we represent, we live in it, and we represent our culture's values. Our primary loyalty then is somewhere else. Sometimes we lose this, that calling Jesus Lord is a big, big statement. That could have got the early church in big, big trouble. Saying, Jesus, this guy, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Uh-uh. That gets you in big trouble if you have a dictator who says, no, I am Lord. In fact, I am from God. It's got the, the, the Jews in trouble in captivity where, where we had uh, uh, the Pharaoh being godlike. And fast forward to Daniel and the exiles. Nebuchadnezzar saying, yeah, you're going to bow to me. And them saying, uh-uh, we don't do that. Our loyalty is elsewhere. But then he kind of flipped the switch. He said, also an ambassador needs to be a student of the culture. Seek to understand the culture. We're living in a culture that's not our own. We're trying to represent our culture's values. But in order to speak any coherent thoughts into the people who live in this culture and have not had their lives changed by Christ, we need to understand where they are coming from. We need to understand where they are coming from. Sorry, I got a little clicky, click happy there. And the final thing, and this was the part that really caught my attention when this guy was talking about what an ambassador does. We have to have affection for the culture we live in. This one I think is hard for us. What does it mean for us to actually love the culture we live in without saying that and, every, and accepting or affirming everything we see in the culture? But what does it mean for us to love people so much that we're willing to say, I want to understand why you live this way. I want to understand why you value these things and to have a love for the culture. Uh, Jody and I were at Disneyland on Friday and uh, I had this moment where we were watching uh, The World of Color. Uh, so we're at California Adventure. The World of Color starts. And I had this moment where I stopped and I went, who came up with this idea? We're going to shoot all this water into the air. And then we're going to project images onto the water. I'm imagining a group of people and somebody comes up with the idea and then just laughing that person out of the room saying, you are crazy. But they did it. They did it. And I, and I had this moment of, of affection for the culture, an affection where it says, like, we are creative people. One of the really cool things about U.S. culture and our DNA and American culture is this idea that if you put your mind to it, you can do it. 
And we can be creative and we can ins- be inspired to do incredible things. And I watched as this little girl next to me, this, this family was clearly French-Canadian because they had Toronto uh, Blue Jays stuff on and they didn't understand the language they were speaking. And this little girl was up on her dad's shoulders and the song Let It Go came on and she opened her arms, Let It Go. And I was like, this is beautiful. I love people. I love creativity. I love this. Oh, I love this. It's so cool. I realize I I have an affection for pieces of the culture that I live in. There are so many beautiful things. And and as a church, have we lost our ability to speak into those things? Have we lost our ability to say like, oh, we want to be about those beautiful things, walking alongside those things, participating when it's appropriate in those things, rather than creating this thing like, oh, yeah, Disney, I don't know, they support some bad stuff, We sometimes do that as Christians, though, and we start to judge, and we start to say, well, I have these values, and it won't allow me to, oh, it's beautiful. A little girl just screaming the words at the top of her lungs. Beautiful scene. Just the joy on people's faces. Can the church be about that? Can we say, oh, I want to capture some of that. That's a beautiful thing in our culture. I want to capture some of that joy, some of that excitement ambassador for Christ, Christ's representative. Final question for us that I, I thought about as I think about how do we then take these type, type of things, these um, ambassador qualities and go into our culture knowing what we know now about what God has done. How do we go? One of the questions I had to ask myself and I came up with this and, and this is that uh, the pastor getting a little too personal question but here we go. The question is if somebody knew you or knew me they didn't know anything about Jesus, but they observed the way we behave, we, behave, we act, we, th- we think, we speak. If they were able to observe those things for a while, and, th- and they found out later that we represent this king named Jesus. You know, they have no idea who Jesus is, and they're like, okay, so you are representing a king named Jesus. What would they think are the values of Jesus if they just watched us? If they just watched me, if they just watched you, what would they think it means to follow Jesus, to follow after this king? What are, what are the kingdom values as we are living them out? If our loyalty is to King Jesus, if we're representing his values, what would people say? It, it kind of was a gut check for me to think about when I'm living in the world, when I'm going about my life, I, I think about this a lot when I was coaching How am I representing Jesus as a coach to these kids? How am I representing Jesus in every single thing that I do in my life? And and that's a hard question to ask. And it takes a lot of self-examination. But it's important because here in this text, here in this text, Paul is laying out not only some basic theology that is really good news to the world, but then is saying, guess what, church? you get to be the ones to carry that good news to the world. You get to be the ones. As if, as though Christ were making his appeal through you. Be reconciled to God. Final thing, to sort of let you off the hook, now that I, you know, got a little personal there. The coolest thing is, it's not your job to do the reconciling. It's not your job to somehow like now, 
okay, now I have to muster up the energy to go out and seal the deal with all the lost souls out there. I have to go knocking on doors to try to get people, to, to, to try to persuade people to talk them into loving Jesus. It's not your job to talk people into that. That's what God does. It is your job, it is my job, to faithfully represent our King. It is our job to faithfully live as followers of Jesus in the world. It is our job to testify to what we have seen, what we have experienced. It is our job to tell people what God has done in our lives and to be reminded of what God has done for all the world, to be the people who are saying, God is not counting your sins against you. I don't care what street preacher guy says. There is good news. God is not counting your sins against you. It's our job to tell people this good news in the hopes that they will respond, that the Spirit will move them to respond. So may we join Christ in this ministry of reconciliation, preaching a message of reconciliation, of radical forgiveness, preaching to people, be reconciled to God, knowing that the work is already done, sins have already been forgiven, and inviting people to receive that forgiveness, that freedom that only Christ can give. Would you pray with me? Your word, Lord, says that if we are in you, we are new creations. And we confess that we don't always feel that way. We often feel like maybe nothing has changed or a lot of that old creation just seeps back in and we see things through that lens. And Lord, we are, we are praying this morning, asking that your spirit would come and transform our eyes, transform our way of seeing the world, our way of interacting with the world. God, inspire us by your Spirit, not by our own strength, not by our own efforts, but inspire us by your Spirit that lives inside of us to be your ambassadors, your representatives. Lord, to represent your kingdom values, to be students of our culture, and Lord, when it's appropriate to show love for the things in our culture that are beautiful. And Lord, as a church then, to walk alongside those things and to bring you with us, God, into those beautiful things in our culture. Lord, help us to have words when necessary. Help us to hear and be quiet when people are sharing their journeys with us, their feelings with us. Help us, Lord, to just be your hands and feet, your mouthpieces in this world, your ambassadors. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So now we turn to the table. I don't know a more fitting, more beautiful representation of what Christ has done for us than coming to the table to be reminded of God sending His Son, His, His Son's sacrifice for you and for me. So we come to the table this morning to meet our King, to sit at a, a table with our King, King Jesus. The gospel tells us on the first day of the week, the day our Lord rose from the dead, he appeared to some of his disciples and was made known to them in the breaking of bread. It is true for us as well. Christ is made known to us as we break this bread and drink this cup together. As we prepare to come to the Lord's table, we reflect on our reasons for thanksgiving and faith, our need for forgiveness and love. So in this time of silence, we remember our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ 
who called us to share this meal together, and we examine the state of our faithfulness and our unity with his body. We pray. Lord, we come confessing, confessing, Lord, that we have not always faithfully represented you, represented your kingdom values. Hear our prayers, Lord. Lord, even as we have confessed, we give you praise that our sins have been forgiven. That you chose, God, not to count our sins against us. We are eternally grateful. And we give you all the thanks and praise this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Sisters and brothers, this is food for the journey to which God has called us. Let our lives be nourished by the Lord himself as we celebrate together at this table. The Apostle Paul tells us that on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and we had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. Paul goes on to tell us that in the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Paul then reminds us that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the death of Jesus until he comes again. I love that. That communion, when we gather here, this is proclamation of what Jesus has done. I'd like to invite the servers to come forward at this time. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, to you be praise and honor for giving yourself, shedding your blood, and letting your body be broken in death for our sake so that we might have the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Bless God, this bread which we together eat and this cup which we together drink. Let us, through this blessed bread and this blessed cup, become partakers of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Unite us with one another, with all your saints in heaven and on earth. Consecrate us, body and soul, to be a living, acceptable offering to you, so that in word and deed we may continually praise and glorify your holy name, now and forever. Amen. This is the Lord's table. It is Jesus himself who invites you to this meal. This table is open to all who believe and have professed faith in Jesus Christ. Even if today is that day where you took a step towards faith in Jesus Christ for being a new creation, you are invited to this table. Uh, You'll be receiving communion in your pews this morning. Uh, The bread will come first, we'll take together, and then the cup will come second, and we'll take the cup together.
Christ's body broken for you and for me. Let us eat together. So the blood of Christ takes away the sins of the world. Amen.
Would you stand and join us for our closing song?